The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2.16, we're picking up where we left off last week like we typically do. We're, if uh, you're new with us, we've just been working our way verse by verse, passage by passage through uh, the book of Colossians. You can find the previous sermons online or on our podcast uh, here, but uh, we're just continuing on. And if you remember last week, uh, uh, there's this uh, controlling command in verses 6 and 7, or really at the end of 6, to walk in Him. And the passages now that we come to are adding a continued clarity and practicality to how we walk with or walk in Christ. Because here's the thing. Faith and following Jesus is oftentimes just so simple for us. At its core, becoming Jesus' friend and walking with him is pretty basic. Where even the youngest of children with limited understanding are welcomed in and can walk with him. There is no like higher cognitive understanding nor elite ability uh, to obey that is required. Now, even as I say that, this isn't to diminish the eternality of God and the complexity of his characteristics and the complexity of our lives, but it does really bring us back to the simplicity of following Jesus. And yet within us, within humanity, is the desire that uh, wants more. The desire for more is lurking in us. The enemy tempts us to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus as if his death and resurrection wasn't enough to save us, wasn't to, enough to accomplish what we need. Uh, we, we begin to question, will I make it to the end? Is my salvation secure? The enemy tempts us to doubt the authority of Jesus, doubting uh, can his power really come through in this circumstance? Will my circumstance be the time where he finally fails? We doubt the necessity of Jesus, the necessity of believing in him and trusting him, looking to other uh, uh, ways of living or thinking we can live our own life the way we want and God will be good with us. Why? Because he accepts us as we are. And now these, as these doubts, which really turn into deceptions, as they begin to creep in, we uh, then begin to think, well, maybe I need to do more to please God. Maybe I need to do more to be right with God. Maybe I need to do more to add to his work. The Bible doesn't seem to have answers, so I need to look elsewhere. The Bible is boring. I need something more exciting in my life to keep me following Christ. Maybe my sin and my struggle are too much, and I need to find help from someone or something or somewhere else. And it's in the doubts, it's in the distractions, it's in the enticement for more that we are easily led astray. The Colossians faced it. So we've said before, they were being influenced by this Gnosticism, a, 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 a false ideology, thinking that you need to have a higher lead understanding. And they were being deceived by a, a legalistic form of Judaism, saying, no, we need to do more. The Colossians faced these influences, and here's the reality, we face them as well. So our passage today, as it is so relevant, uh, irrelevant, it is so timely, it is... So truth-filled, it warns us of these ways we are led to see in the greatness 
of Jesus Christ. So open your Bibles. Hopefully you've found it already. I want to read it, and I want to see if you can spot the three warnings that we'll look more closely at. But the three warnings here in our passage, Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Follow along. I'm going to read it for us now. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. For if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you, not, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word for God's people. Now, here's how we can sum up the text. If you're taking notes, write this down this morning. When following Jesus, beware of anything that leads you away from Jesus. I'm going to get my water because my voice is a little uh, scratchy this morning. It's all the dust and things. But can you hear the gravel in my voice? Let me just take a drink here. There we go. When following Jesus, what, what are we writing down? When following Jesus, beware of anything that would lead you away from or astray or lead you away from Jesus. Here's how we can sum it up. Here's the bottom line. This is the main point or the argument that Paul is trying to make to the Colossians and to us this morning. Now, in the previous passage, in verses 8 to 10, Paul warned of threats at the level of belief. Hey, don't be taken captive by these philosophies, by this deception, by these traditions, or these elemental spirits or principles. But the now in our passage, which I just read for you, he warns about threats at the level of our behaviors. Of anything that, uh, 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 those external rituals that look religious on the outside, but upon closer examination are devoid of faith. They are actually not, as we were told in, in verse 6 and 7, they are not walking in him established in the faith. That they are, are establishing our own rituals, our own uh, sense of religiosity. Because see, here's the stark reality this morning. It's possible to be inwardly rebellious and outwardly religious. Let me say that again so we don't miss it. It's possible to be inwardly rebellious and outwardly religious. And it's in our examination here as we work through these three warnings that we need to look outwardly at what is influencing us. How are we living? So that way we inwardly look at why we do what we do. And so there's, like I said, three warnings. Three warnings here. Beware of anyone. Here's the first one. Beware of anyone who says, the way to God is through your obedience. Beware of anyone who says the way to God is through your obedience. Look at those first two verses in our passage this morning, 16 and 17. In a word, we could sum this up as legalism. 
he, he's, he says there in, the, in the, the command or the warning, let no one pass judgment. In other words, to act as a judge, to stand at the bench rendering right and wrong about your faith when the rubric or the standard by which they are judging right and wrong is through the lens of diets and days. That's ultimately what he's saying here. Let no one, if they are judging your faith, if they are, are, are judging your, uh, your religiosity or your righteousness with God, if the standard that they are judging by is diets and days, that's how we can sum this up, then we must be warned. See, apparently for the, uh, the Colossians has been mentioned along the way, they were being influenced by those who were insisting that, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, you must still follow the Old Testament laws particularly in the dietary laws. You can find them in like places like Leviticus 11 and all throughout the Pentateuch there. You know, all those places that as you begin your like one year read through the Bible where you get bogged down and you're wondering what in the world is going on here, right? See, there were those that were ins- insisting that these things, these questions of food or drink, what you can eat or what you can't eat, what you can drink and what you can't drink, that this was still required for being right with God, and not only in what they eat, those dietary laws, but also in the days or Old Testament festivals. This was saying with regard to festivals or new moons, because oftentimes their uh, religious days were marked by moons on a lunar calendar or these uh, or, or the Sabbath here. See, the, these festivals, they commemorated the mighty works of the Lord. Multiple other places that, uh, that, that uh, uh, line these out, the Passover and the Feast of, the, uh, of Unleavened Bread, for example, or something, that were celebrating God's deliverance. The Israelites' deliverance from slavery out of Egypt, or the uh, Feast of first fruits, the celebrating God's provision in their time of harvest, or the Sabbath as a festival. But here's the reality. In the time of the New Testament, even though God had given it like thousands of years before that, by the time of even the New Testament, it had become so warped that it was burdensome to the people of God instead of restful as God has, had intended it. The truth of why God was in it. Now all these uh, standards, all these things uh, encrusted around it so that it had lost its even intended meaning. And the error in these things was the insistence that on obeying these rituals, that one had to do these things in order to be right with God. But this is really what legalism is. Legalism, if we were to define it, it's, it's just simply this, requiring any action as a means to achieving righteousness with God. Think of like, well, what is this? When we require any action whether it's uh, something we do or don't do, as a means to achieving righteousness with God. That's true legalism. Now, just to kind of back off this and, and to think, because sometimes we use, uh, we can take this too far, and anytime someone tells us, no, hey, don't do that, you know, th- that action or that, uh, uh, the way you're talking and things, that, that doesn't please God, and we're like, ah, oh, don't be a legalist. Now, now we can't take that too far, because <laughs> we are to admonish and warn and exhort and help and teach one another. Sometimes we just don't like it, but where it crosses the line is where we say, you have to do that in order to be right with God. And so the legalist here, the warning then, is anyone who puts themselves in the place of the judge to say, hey, you aren't Jesus' friend because you don't obey this external ritual. Weird, let no one pass judgment. But here's the thing, it's somebody else outside, but in our own hearts, we can have little legalistic hearts as well. 
Or sometimes we are even uh, 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 wrongly under the judgment of our own way of thinking that if I don't obey these external rituals, then I can't be Jesus' friend. But church, here's the all-sufficient truth wrapped up in Christ. We are right with God because of Jesus' obedience. We are right with God because of Jesus' obedience. We are saved because Jesus obeyed. We are saved, why? Because he did all the law perfectly. And so what are we to make of all the the laws? And how does this get wrapped up in in, in Jesus? Well, look, he says, let no one pass judgment on these things. But then look at verse 17. These, speaking of the diets and the days in the previous verse, these are but a shadow uh, of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what were all those things? Were they just for not? Did God make a mistake in in prescribing all these things in the Old Testament? No, they were merely just shadows. See, picture it this way. A great light shining from heaven with Christ on the cross. Here is the substance casting a shadow on these things. So they were images or figures pointing back to realities that were then uh, uh, in Christ. See, the dietary laws are revealing to us our need for purity the impurity of our own life, that there is a reality in life that things are pure and impure that we can't get away from. The festivals were revealing pieces of the divine character as they were shining its light on Christ, showing the various things of Jesus where the substance belongs to him, the all-sufficient, incomparable Savior. See, he fulfilled all the law. It was Christ who was the Passover lamb. It is Christ who is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is Christ who is the bread of life. And see, it is he who is the fulfillment. It was he in his perfect obedience as a man in this life that accomplished our salvation so that we could be in relationship with God. He's the one who lived the life that we couldn't, but he did it perfectly. He laid down his life once for all as the sacrifice for sins. See, listen to what the Hebrew or the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. Just listen to this. Says, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That's Christ. Interesting thing. If you know the Old Testament law, he was both the priest and the sacrifice. But he was the one holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like the other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those for the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Praise God that it was in Christ's obedience that we are then made right with God. But does this mean then that we are able to live a life and do whatever we want? Y'all should be shaking your heads right now. No. No, of course not. It doesn't mean that we're then just free to do whatever we want. It's like, okay, we don't have the law. It is in Christ's obedience. Now we can do whatever we want. But then what then becomes the place of obedience in following Christ? Well, see here, obedience to the Lord's commands or the Bible's commands is necessary, but it does not improve our standing with God. We are saved by Christ's obedience because as his enemies, we couldn't and we wouldn't even if we could. When he reconciles us then to himself, he frees us up to follow him even more in joyful obedience, not meritorious obedience, seeking to earn his favor. Why? Because we know his way is best and good. Just think about the order of these things. We know the story of Exodus. Hopefully you do. What came first? The Israelites' deliverance from their slavery or the law? 
Did God say, here is the law? Did he lay it all down and say, obey all of these things, and then I will set you free out from the brutal Egyptian slavery? Do all this, and then I will set you free. Which came first? You know the answer. It's simple. Their deliverance. Then they were set free into the wilderness, and God gave them these commands to save them from themselves, to, from their, their perpetual uh, desire to go back into the law, to try to deliver themselves, to try to take matters into their own hands. And he says, no, just do these. Obey these laws. Follow me and follow these ways. So, therefore, we are to watch out. Anyone who says, hey, the way to God is through your obedience. No, it's through Christ's obedience. He is the substance of our faith. He is the substance of our obedience. But there's a second warning. Did you catch it in verse 18? As I was reading it, did you catch it? Were you observing as I read it? Here's the second one. Beware of anyone who says the way to God is through your experience. The way to God is through your experience in 18 verses 19. In a word, we could sum up this as mysticism. In the first few verses, hey, watch out for legalism. Now watch out for mysticism. Those that say your experience is necessary. And the warning then comes in, the, in, in more of a, a game type warning here. He says, let no one disqualify you or disregard you. Therefore, let no one like sit in the place of an umpire and rob you of the prize. Sometimes you'll hear athletes blame the game. They lost the game. And who do they blame it on? They blame it on the refs, Right? If he wouldn't have made that call or he missed that call and they robbed you of the prize. But redemption, who is our prize? What is our reward? Is love. What is our inheritance? His presence. Eternal relationship with him. Jesus is our prize. His love is our reward. His eternal presence is our inheritance. This is what we are after. This is what we long for. This is what we are set free from. When we are delivered out of our sin, we are delivered into his presence as his children and as his friends. And what then would rob us of the prize? It's anything that says Jesus isn't enough. That his love is insufficient that his presence is not enough. He's uh, the, anything that would say there's more out there to experience. And so he lists out these four things here. Do you see what it is, uh, they are in verse 18? Right? He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that warped self-deprivation that looks spiritual, but is only about appearances. It looks good to others through the, through the deprivation or the denial of material or physical things. Saying that, no, we have to live this life of poverty in a way that puffs ourselves up, makes us look good. This robs us of the joy of knowing Christ and his love and his presence. Anything else that falls under the worship of angels, let no one disqualify, insisting, here's the rubric, here's the, the rules by which they are rendering this judgment of the worship of angels. Those mystical fascinations with the spiritual realm. And here's the thing, it's nothing new. Around in those days with the Colossians, it's around now as people have a fascination with like guardian angels, claims of like seeing angel orbs in the atmosphere. It's all nonsense. Why? Because it steals worship from Jesus. And the Bible's pretty clear that is something an angel would never do. Revelation 19, Revelation 22, John twice 
twice bows down. He has this vision in, in heaven. He's there. He's seeing these things. And John, in his exuberance, he bows down and he starts to worship the angels. And what do they say? With stark uh, uh, force, worship God. Not angels. No, they don't, they don't steal. This robs us of the prize of Jesus and it robs Jesus of the prize of our worship. See, it, it, it goes on here. Then anyone who's going on, look at this there. It's kind of weird. Going on in detail about visions. Things, those stories that are pretty detailed, they're elaborate, they sound true, but they, uh, they're, they're, they sound like, well, they must be from the Lord, but they can never be verified. They can never be verified. And they go on and on insisting on these visions, insisting on these experiences, insisting upon these things that are out there. These things rob us, rob the Colossians, they rob us of the prize. Those who are puffed up without reason by his sensuous or fleshly, here, fleshly mind. There are those that are proud and claiming to be experts of spiritual things. They're proud of all their their spiritual accomplishments, about their experiences. Look what I have done for the Lord. Look what I have done. And in the midst of it, come up with these complex teachings about things. Complex teachings about how to uh, how to uh, to follow God. These complex systems of uh, of like righteous looking rituals. Complex teachings about angels and demons and interpreting dreams and end times and all kinds of world events and whatnot. And so, why the warning with these categories? Because they erode our grip on the sufficiency and authority of Jesus and subtly cause us to hold uh, fast to that person or to that experience that you've had or they have had. They keep us then coming back to that person or to that experience like an addict keeps coming back for that experience or that high or that feeling. Let no one rob you, church. Let no one rob us of the prize, which is Jesus, and the reward, which is his love, and the the inheritance, which is his presence. See, our faith, our growth in it, then is then if we if we follow this line of reason, it's based on our experience or their experience and not in the word of God. Not in not in the head for who's our foundation. Look at verse 19. The head, it's Christ. And see if our foundation uh, or our authority is in that author or that podcaster or this leader or that pastor or this counselor or that expert and it's not in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Zechariah or John as inspired by the Holy Spirit and fulfilled in Jesus, then we are being robbed of the prize. Because the all-sufficient truth is this, we are right with God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It was his experience. It was his, uh, he is the revelation of what is true. He is the one that showed us how to live. And anyone, including ourselves, that says, I need more, or I need this experience, that I need more to God, that Jesus is too narrow. There's more truth beyond Jesus. Jesus is too simple, and I need more and more. I'm not satisfied. And we will be robbed of the fullness and the maturity that are found in Jesus alone. See, look at, come back to verse 19. It's not, we're holding fast to the head amongst the whole body. Speaking of us, but our church, the membership, we're nourished and knit together. We are fed. We are held together by Jesus, the head. And so any sort of mysticism, any sort of insistence upon a personal experience effectually decapitates you. It beheads your faith and prevents your growth, which is found in the Lord. It is through Jesus that we grow in godliness. 
And so what is then the place of experience? Is walking with Jesus then just some sort of like abstract uh, connotation? Is it just some sort of uh, uh, objective thing that it's just based in words on a page? Well, no, walking with Jesus is a real experience. It is everything in our life in the same way that our marriage is, the same, is, a, is an experience here, but our experience is not our authority. We interpret our experiences through the authority of God's Word, through the sufficiency of who uh, Jesus is as revealed in the Scriptures. And our faith isn't just based on like facts and truth. It's a relationship for sure, a relationship that's founded in the truth of God's Word. Let no one disqualify us based on any sort of ritualistic experience that is so-called to be required for being right with God. But there's a third warning. Did you catch it in verse 20? Beware of anyone who says the way to God is through self-denial. It says just denial on the screen here, but I would add here just some clarity in it through self-denial. And a word here is, again, asceticism. Or in the first warning, beware of anyone who would add legalistic rituals, anyone who would add mystical uh, rituals to the, in the second. And now these ascetic rituals, that warped self-deprivation that looks spiritual but is only about outward appearances, looks good on the outside, looks good to others with these displays of self-denial of material things, but inwardly is self-sufficient, inwardly is rebellious. And now here, the warning is, looks a little bit different. Did you notice that? It kind of changes it now into the form of a question that's uh, anchored in the truth. You kind of have to, you know, in those first few verses, 20, 21, 22, there, it's, it's all kind of like mashed together, right? And so the question, if we were to like, just kind of like pull it out here, if we were kind of to extract it, is basically this, why do you submit to regulations, why do you allow regulations to be your master? Or if we were to phrase it in the same way as the other two warnings, uh, let no one uh, uh, master you by regulations. And it's a truth that's anchored in verse 20 here. You see it there? The whole verse is really finds its apex in verse 20. It says, if, or we could even say, since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. He died, if with Christ you have died to sin and false theology, to your own way of doing things, why do we keep doing this? And so the question is, have you? Have you died with Christ? It's really a gospel question. Have you died to yourself? Have you died to your sin? Have you put the, your former ways of thinking to death? Have you died with Christ, identified with him in his death, burial, and now resurrection, alive with Christ, alive in Christ, to newness of life, to new ways of thinking, to new ways of deciding, to new ways of desiring, to new ways of living your life. See, we've died to these old ways, these elementary ways of thinking. This really is the gospel. And if you have then, you are no longer mastered by these self-denying regulations to earn your salvation. See, this is like, like th this motivation here is why unbelievers do sacrificial good things. So they would be recognized. 
But if verse 20 is that anchor truth of the whole passage, if with Christ we've died to these elemental spirits. Remember that was referenced last week in verse 8. There are elemental principles or elemental spirits, that basic, uh, elementary, rudimentary way of viewing the world. Like karma or hakuna matata or some other, you know, simple way of viewing life. We've died to these ways of thinking. He said, then why would you still act as if you are still alive or these things are still your master? You've been set free. You no longer have to follow that way of living. You know, they're no longer your masters. This is no longer your way of living as if by these regulations that, are, uh, that, that appear godly on the outside. Why, why, why are you obeying all the worldly methods of self-denial? They appear effective. They appear godly, especially in not sinning. But the truth is from verse 23, they are powerless. You see it? But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Flesh being our sinful nature. Flesh being those desires within us that want to sin and do what is wrong and displeases God. But see, here's the thing. Rules and regulations are only as powerful as the one who put them in place. Self-made, man-made rules are powerless. Because we lack the strength. We lack the endurance. We lack the fortitude. We lack the discipline to carry them out. This is why we have to pray. God, strengthen us, as we've said. Strengthen us with your might so that we have endurance, so that we have patience with joy to continue following you. See why God's rules, God's regulations, when he gives them from the scripture, they are powerful and effective. But in our fight against sin and our desires to please God as his children, as his friends. We can set up all the walls we want around us. But it does not uh, alleviate the main problem that is within us and not without us or outside of us. See, if you picture it here, it's the truth here. We can set up all these walls, the laws and the rules and the regulations to keep us from all the outside things. But where does, as Jesus brings it out in Mark chapter 7 and all throughout the scriptures, where is our problem? within us. Monks and others have tried for centuries to get away, to live a life free from it all. And yet, they cannot escape it because we cannot escape ourselves. All the regulations of not handling, not tasting, not touching, they're, all, they're, they're powerless. They, they, they perish. They, 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 these things come and they go. But what do you think the question, or the answer rather to his question is in verse 20? Why is it Why do we submit ourselves to these external regulations? To these self-made religious regulations? Here's a few reasons. Maybe it's a question for yourself to examine before the Lord. But here's here's one reason, I think, because of self-comfort. It's easier. We don't have to think and wrestle. We can just put these these, uh, rules around me and I just don't do it. And then I don't ever have to think about it or do anything. I just, I just follow it. It, it it's, a, it's a comfortable way of thinking. If Then I just, I, it, it's just settled for me. It's an extreme form, and then I can think about it. Or I don't have to think about it. Maybe it's self-justification. Is, it, it, as we do it, as we have these rules, then it makes us look better because we can then say, look, I follow these rules perfectly. Sure, I've, I, I, I'm right with the Lord. Maybe we're just deceived as really seems to be the thing that he's bringing out here because why these things appear right, they appear real, but they're just fool's gold. It isn't worth anything. 
But even in the warnings of self-denial, here's the all-sufficient truth that we are right with God because Jesus denied himself and took up his cross to die. Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself. He left his heavenly throne. He denied himself and came to earth to live the perfect life, to die in our place. It was his denial, his uh, emptying of himself coming to earth. See, ours is a blood-bought faith, not a self-made religion. And so does this mean that we can then just live an excessive life and throw off all discipline? Another place, another opportunity to shake your head. Wake up, y'all. I know we're all in an hour less of sleep this morning. Of course not. Of course not. Self-discipline is right and good, but it does not like keep us in our salvation. It does not keep us in God's graces. Disciplines are not these uh, regulations, not this self-denying poverty, but the spiritual disciplines. We say of praying and reading our Bible and living in community and fasting and walking with the Lord and saying no to sin are all God's grace uh, or by God's grace to keep us close to Him. They're all means to make His presence and our relationship with Him more intimate and more close, not to make us right or to make us earn His favor or to, uh, or to uh, earn access to Him. And so why such strong warnings in this passage? Well, because none of these outwardly religious ways are actually walking in him. They seem good. They seem on the outside. But it's possible, like I said, to be inwardly rebellious and outwardly uh, religious. None of these ways are actually walking in him. The controlling command. Look at the end of verse 6. I know it's outside, but remember, this is going to filter. This is going to uh, uh, catalyze the rest of the book here. Walking in him, rooted in Christ. None of these things don't root us back into Christ. Regulations, legalistic, our experiences, they don't root us in Christ to bear fruit for Christ. They don't build us up in Christ. They build us up in our own pride. They build us up in our own accomplishments. They don't establish us in the faith or fortify us. They only establish us in our own accomplishments and achievements. None of these things, the legalistic way, the mystical way, the ascetic way, uh, do not cause us to abound in thanksgiving for Jesus, only to boast in our own accomplishments or in our own achievements here. And so what do we know today? How can we take a deep breath, even being warned in this as we examine our own hearts, as we examine the things that are in our life here, we can take a deep breath knowing that we get to meet with God because we are secure in his love as we've been saved by him. So what can we do this morning? Take a deep breath. Can you do that? And tell the Lord, thank you. Tell Christ, thank you this morning. Now that we are his friends, he provides us these opportunities. He provides us these ways of obeying him and walking with him. Not all the hoops to jump through to earn time with him. For the all-sufficient, incomparable Christ is our way to God. It is through Jesus that we know how to obey. obey. It is through Jesus that we now get to delightfully obey. It is through Jesus that we now have a joy-filled, peace-filled life. It is through Jesus that we give up worldly pleasures for the greater reward. It is through Jesus that we grow and mature in the faith. It is through Jesus that we worship him rightly. See, there is no more necessary. It's just Jesus. He is exalted over it all. 
He is our all-sufficient Savior, the one who's giving us all we need today to walk rightly with him. That's good news, is it not, church? It's good news. Pray with me now.